that has power that we can speak. And we just thank you so much for your word and that we can just be taught by your word today. Pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Luke chapter 3 today, continuing our journey through the gospel of Luke. Last week in chapter 2, we talked about uh, how even in his infancy, Jesus begins fulfilling key points of the law. That uh, in chapter 2, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to uh, dedicate him, and even before that, have him circumcised on the eighth day. And we talked about how it, just those acts have a huge significance to them. That Jesus, well, the, the act of circumcision was bringing young men under, or children as men, under the old covenant. Well, that sign of the covenant was given to Abraham, and Jesus was present when it was given to him. And so now Jesus is being brought under the very covenant he created. Abraham and the dedication and in the temple was meant to point back to the Passover when God delivered Israel from Egypt with that last terrible um, plague of the firstborn sons of Egypt dying and you know the story that the blood of the lamb had to be put on the doorposts of, of the houses of Israel in order for the angel of death to pass over those homes and all of that was pointing forward to Jesus. The blood of the lamb placed upon our lives that death would pass us over. And so, again, we see this great circle being completed as Jesus is dedicated, pointing to the Passover, which points back to Jesus. And it's awesome. I love that kind of stuff. Um, and so now we move on into chapter 3, where I guess, you know, the other thing we looked at in chapter 2 is this very brief little glimpse of Jesus at 12 years old where they take him to the temple, uh, or they take him to Jerusalem as part of the Passover, and then they lose him. And again, <laughs> I just feel so bad for Joseph and Mary, right? That they travel a, a day's journey out of town to realize that Jesus is not with their company, go back to Jerusalem, search for three days, and finally find him in the temple. And when they find him, he says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And it's an interesting statement. It speaks a lot about, uh, to us, that Jesus knew exactly who he was. It's not something he grew into. It's not something he suddenly got this revelation at 30 years old that he's the son of God. He knew the whole time. And in Jewish custom, Jewish, Jewish culture, at 12 years old, a son would begin to learn the apprenticeship of his father. And at 13, he would become a full apprentice. And so at 12 years old, Jesus is like, I'm beginning my work now, right? Uh, anyhow, very cool. Now we go into chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. And I think there is so much relevant about the generation that John was in and the generation that we are in. I find John the Baptist to be a fascinating character. And I think a lot of times we kind of just see him as like the opening act for Jesus, right? Like he comes on the scene, he does a little bit, and then, and then we're like, okay, John, move out of the way. Jesus is here, right? <laughs> but we need to understand that there is so much about John that was important for setting the stage for Jesus, that his work had been prophesied about 
And, uh, and again, I think it's very applicable to us. We're going to see that John is called to show a very tough love to Israel. And it's, he's the wake-up call. He's the one getting everyone to kind of snap out of their slumber that they would be wide awake for Jesus' arrival. Right? So some of the things, as we'll see, are pretty rough that John says, and he is a very different character. But I think, uh, again, a lot of parallels between then and now. So let's pray one more time, and we will get into chapter 3. Which uh, We're going to get the whole chapter done today. There's a big, long genealogy at the end, which we are not going to do. I'm not going to torture you with all of my mispronunciations of the names. Um, but we will just briefly touch on it at the end. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for the power that's in your word. And we just submit ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, guide us, and change us according to your word. And we uh, just thank you that that's a work that you desire to do. And uh, again, we give you this time, we give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Ju- over Judea, Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch over Ituria, and the region of, uh, I don't, I'm not even going to try that one, uh, and Linus, tetriarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went out into all the regions around Jordan, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low, and crooked places made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Um, this is an interesting time, and I love that we've seen Luke do this before. He does it again here to give a timeline of when these events begin to take place. Um, and while he he could have tried to just like give it a date because they did have ways of keeping track of time there. Uh, they, they changed a lot. They changed all the time. And so he gives the key rulers and, and key players that are ruling over not only Israel, but in the Roman world as well, to just, again, say, this is not a made-up fairy tale. This is real. These were the leaders in charge when all this took place. Uh, and again, people will say, oh, well, you know, the Bible's really just more like fables and, and made up like Greek mythology. Not at all. All of these names have been proven archaeologically and historically, and, and the things that Luke brings out very clearly give us the time of when they took place. The other thing that it tells us, it gives us a good idea, again, just looking at historically what we know about these characters that he lists here, is it tells us what it was like to live in Israel. Because all of them were horrible people. <laughs> These are the leaders. And so not just the Roman leaders that he lists here, and they were terrible. Uh, Caesar and uh, who else? Herod and Pontius Pilate. These were known to be some of the most brutal rulers of that time. 
Pilate, and of course we know a little bit about Pilate from the Gospels, but what a lot of times we don't realize is that he had a reputation of being one of the most just sadistic, evil men of his day. He was so bad that Caesar had to ask him to back off. Now that's bad. I mean, when Caesar, <laughs> again, completely horrible, absolutely no moral compass at all, and when he's the guy going, hey, maybe you can just dial it back a little bit, just that tells you how bad Pilate was. And then we come to Annas and Caiaphas, who were high priests. Now that's the only time uh, up until this point where there were two high priests in Israel. According to the law, there was only supposed to be one. And he would be high priest until the day he died. He was never replaced. He couldn't be voted out. But Annas, who had been high priest in Israel, was so difficult to work with that, it, or that Rome put his son-in-law Caiaphas as in the role of high priest. So you kind of have the Roman selection of high priest, and then you've got Israel's high priest. But they were fine with that because both of them were incredibly just political people. They weren't that concerned with the things of the temple, and they weren't that concerned with the people of Israel. They were manipulators and, again, horrible people. They were known to be corrupt. And, of course, we see that they were key players, if not the key players, in Jesus being crucified. Now, in contrast to all of this, again, Luke just kind of lists these people. He doesn't say anything about them, but we know historically who they were. In contrast to those people, there is John the Baptist that comes on the scene. Who has chosen to be out in the desert, out in the lonely places by himself. And though we, we get a little bit of a preview of his life and, and what, how many people were looking to John when he, from the time that he was born. You know, earlier in Luke it says that he lived out in the desert places and he grew in, in the wisdom of the Lord. And that everyone in that region had taken note and put these things away in their heart concerning John. So that would mean the visitation to his father, Zacharias, at the temple from the angel. It would mean Zacharias' prophecy about John. And, and the people took note. People were watching John. And so he went out into the lonely, desert, deserted places of the desert. And uh, verse 2 says, And the word of the Lord came to John the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is one of the first things I think, John's a good example to us. And we see this same thing many times in Scripture, that his calling was clear. He knew it from his childhood. His dad would have been telling him the whole thing about, and the angel told me what you're going to do, right? And so John knew what his job was. He had a very close connection with the Lord. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew what he was about, yet... He waited to do it. I think for myself, I know a lot of times, if I get just a little bit of direction in something, I am running off to do it, right? I don't give it a lot of consideration. I'm like, oh, you want me to do that? Got it. And I'm off. And I only get like the first little bit of the instruction, right? That's how I tend to roll. I think a lot of us will do that, especially if we feel like it's a calling from God, right? And we're like, yeah, right on. I'm in. Let's do it. Let's go. And we're off. John had all that information, yet he waited. Another great example is in the book of Acts, right? Chapter 1, where Jesus is telling the disciples that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit, but first they must wait. 
that they will go out and preach the gospel. They're going to do all these things. But the first thing that they are told to do is wait until they have received power. And I believe John was doing the exact same thing, that he knew what his calling was. He knew what he was going to do. He had somewhat of a roadmap from God, but he needed to wait to receive power. And so do we. For us to just pause and wait and again not to be lazy and not to put off like if we know God's calling us to do something oh yeah yeah I'll get to that we don't want to be that way either but there is this balance for us to go Lord I'm going to wait to receive power from you for those doors to open up I'm not going to start kicking them in myself I'm going to let you be the one to go before me that he was they were to the disciples were to wait from the promise from the father John was waiting for the call. And so this is when it happens. Is that the word of God came to John. And verse 3 says that then he went out into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The other thing we need to know is that the baptism that John was preaching is different than what we think of. It's different than the baptism we have. When somebody comes to Christ and they want to be baptized, and when we do our baptism service down at the at the ocean, you know, and, and at the beach, what a great time that is. John's baptism was different. First of all, for us as believers, it's an outward expression of the inward change, right? That we've come to Christ, that we have understood we need a Savior, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and the old us is dead, and that's what going down in the water is a picture of, and we've come up alive and new in Christ, right? Nobody gets saved through baptism. I talked with a lady years ago, and she was asking me if she could be baptized. I'm like, yeah, have you ever been baptized before? She said, yeah, actually three times, but they didn't take. And I was like, what? What? They didn't take. It's not a magic spell. You know, it's not, we're not making you change. It's this, anyhow, it's important that we understand, right, what our baptism is about. Now, John's baptism was similar because it also had to do with an inward change and this was an outward symbol but the message is different because his message to israel was basically you are sinners and you need a savior and the baptism was an admittance of that it was saying yes i i am a sinner baptism wasn't something new to israel john didn't make it up but how it applied in israel before up until this point was, is that when a, when a Gentile wanted to be adopted into Israel, they were baptized. And so now for the people of Israel to be baptized, it is a declaration, we are just as lost as the Gentiles. It's huge. It's a huge thing. It's never taken place like this before in Israel. The priests have never seen it. It's never happened in the temple. Nothing like this has taken place. And so it is a huge, really, admonishment to everyone of we need a Savior. This is preparing the way for Jesus, right? This is getting them ready. And, uh, and again, it's powerful what's taking place. This ministry of John's was prophesied about. And Luke makes a point of that. Though Luke is not writing to the people of Israel, he's writing to the Greeks and to the Romans and the Gentiles, really. He does make a point of, of saying that this is prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 40. God made it 
clear that one was going to come before, that in this darkness and all this corruption and in this life that they were living under all these horrible leaders, a light was going to begin to dawn. And John the Baptist would be the beginning of that light, the beginning of that truth. And that he would have a ministry very similar to that of Elijah. Uh, which people misunderstand that, you know, when G Jesus even tells the disciples after John's death, if you can believe it, John was Elijah, and people go, oh, is it some kind of weird reincarnation thing? It's nothing like that. It's just the same type of ministry. Elijah was a no-nonsense, completely out-of-the-box kind of prophet. In other words, what, what was around and considered normal in Elijah's day, Elijah did not fit. And neither does John. <laughs> John is so far out of what people expect. Um, and it's interesting because, again, I know I talked about this earlier, speaking about John's birth. But keep in mind, Zacharias, his father, was a priest, which means John was a priest. John had the attention of everyone in his region and those at the temple would have been paying attention to his life. He could have very easily been the golden boy among the priesthood. He could have come in and everyone's like, oh, this is John the Baptist. Angels spoke about his birth, you know, and all of these things, and his dad prophesied, and we've seen all of these things happen in his life. He could have easily been that type of flash-in-the-pan minister, pastor, evangelist, whatever you want to call it, that, that people, so many people strive to be today. That could have been John. But he chose to completely distance himself from all of that. He didn't live where the priests lived. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the, the center of all theological discussion. He was out in the deserts. He didn't wear what they wore. They wore the long priestly robes that told everyone, I'm a priest, I'm someone important. John wore camel's hair and a, and a leather belt. He didn't eat what they ate. They were like, oh, I can't eat that, it's unclean. Oh, they can't eat that, that might be unclean. That Maybe a Gentile touched that. John's like, I'm going to eat some grasshoppers, right? He... <laughs> He completely distanced himself. He didn't, didn't make himself, he wasn't opposed to the priesthood. He was opposed to what it had become. Huge difference, right? He was fulfilling his role, his calling as a priest like no other person had. But he would not fulfill it the way that everyone else had. Again, in his day, tradition and scripture had blurred, blurred in so many ways that it left everyone wondering, what does God want? What, what, how do we please him? What are the things that he desires? Because you've got one group saying it's all about the law, and you've got another group saying, no, it's all about heritage, and you've got another group that says it's something else. And the common person was like, I really don't know. And so John was a voice of clarity to speak right to the point. And again, he, he does not mince his words. So verse 7 goes on. It says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to him to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit, excuse me, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered, and he said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. John's overall message is preaching a baptism of repentance, right? That's, that's the blanket of what he's teaching. But the opening line is very different, right? <laughs> it's not the warm, soft, seeker-sensitive, come-as-you-are kind of message that we're used to and that we like. He starts off with, brood of vipers, who told you to flee the coming wrath? <laughs> I mean, you don't hear that at too many crusades. You don't hear that at too many outreaches. Basically, who told you to repent? You know, instead of like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. He's asking, why are you even here? Right? I love it. Again, he's the wake-up call. He's the one going, you need to know why you're here. That's really the question. John isn't asking for himself. He's like, why are you even here? You need to know. Because, again, they could have gone. If they just wanted teaching, they could have gone to the temple any time. If they just wanted a theological discussion, they could have had that with any priest in the temple. Why did they go out to the Jordan? Why did they come out to be baptized? They had to understand and be clear for themselves. And I think also not only is he the wake-up call, but he's correcting a lot of misunderstandings they had about what qualified them for salvation, what qualified them to be God's children, right? Is it just heritage? Just being Jewish, just, is that enough? Is that all it requires? John gives him a very clear no. Verse 8, Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So first he, he is addressing the crowd, everyone that comes out. And then later on he'll give the exact same admonishment to the leaders. When the, when the scribes and the Pharisees and all those guys are like, wait a second, why is everyone going to this crazy guy out in the desert? Why is everybody going out there? And so they come out to see what's going on. John's going to tell them the exact same thing with very different results, right? So he tells this to the crowd, and they're like, you're right. We're sinners. We're wrong. Being of Israel is not enough. We're lacking something, but what is it? It's kind of their question. Whereas the leaders will hear the exact same thing, and they'll go, we're fine. We're all right. We're enough on our own, right? And it's so much more, as John is speaking to the crowd, it's so much more than just feeling bad. It's so much more than feeling guilty or ashamed or just having an emotional experience of like, oh, I, I'm so bad, I just do so many things wrong. The Bible actually calls that a worldly sorrow and says that it leads to death. 
And so people feel bad about lots of stuff. People that, whether it's they go to prison or they get in trouble or they get caught for something, whatever it might be, they feel bad. That's not enough. Godly sorrow is what we're called to. And a great example of the difference between those are King Saul and King David. If you remember when King Saul was chasing down David, David had a couple opportunities to kill Saul. And, and with each one, Saul gives this tearful speech in front of the entire army of how wrong he is and how David's right and come home, my son, you know. And, and you're like, wow, that, that looks like repentance. It's not. Because immediately after that, he's chasing David to kill him again. It's a worldly sorrow. On the other side, godly sorrow looks very different. And, and David is the great example of that because he made terrible mistakes. But when he gets caught for it, there's not a lot of emotion. But he is repentant. He bears the fruit of repentance. He owns it. He takes full responsibility for what he's done. And he puts himself under the mercy of God. John is calling the people to a godly repentance. It's, it's not one of emotion. It's not one of like, oh, I felt so bad, and now I feel better because I told someone I felt bad. He's saying, bear the fruit worthy of repentance. And it's actually plural. Fruits, many things. It isn't just one. It, it's not just words. It's not just emotions. It's not just tears. It's action. There is a change of course that takes place. I've been heading this way for so long, and I'm wrong. And now I must turn around and go the other way. But before I can, I have to admit it's the wrong way. I have to admit I've been going the wrong way all this time. And there's something in our human nature that goes, well, yeah, it's the wrong way, but I've already gone this far, right? To turn around now, but it's the wrong way. <laughs> Again, John is, is just no nonsense in his message. So clear about these things. He also lets them know that time is short. There's an old, uh, an old uh, story. And actually, I, don't, I can't even think of where it's from. But the story goes like this. That the devil was meeting with three of his head demons about how to deceive mankind. And he says, well, I need some ideas. What do you guys think? And the first says, let's tell them that there's no God. And... Uh, and the devil says, well, that's not going to work. People will simply look around at creation and they'll know that there is a God. And another one says, uh, okay, well, let's tell them that there's no hell. And he goes, well, I don't think that's going to work either because certainly if people look at creation and they know that there's a God, that he is just, there's a place of rest, but then there also must be the opposite, a place of torment so people will know. So I don't think that's going to work. And the last one says, let's tell them that there's no hurry. And the devil goes, that'll work. See, people can understand I'm going in the wrong direction. And at some point, I need to change. But it's no hurry. I'll get to it eventually. John's message is, there is a hurry. It's important. Time is short. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Everything is about to fall apart. Everything's about to change. And anybody who's still clinging to the tree, and, and I, 
I think it's important, again, not to spend too much time on this. People will read that, and they see that the person is like pictured by the tree, that the axe is laid to the person. It's actually not saying that. It's saying that the axe is laid to the, the systems and the structures that the people are clinging to, to the rules, to the regulations, to the traditions. Those trees are coming down. They're being destroyed. They're being thrown into the fire. Of course, anybody that clings to them will go along for the ride. But he is not saying any, every, these people are going to be lost. The choice has to be made. But they are all coming down. All the distractions, all the things that people cling to. Now, not only is time short, and again, I think it, it's important that there's just no gray area. Time is short because there is a judgment coming. It's no small correction. This isn't a little pruning of the tree. It is a decimation of the things that people have been holding to and trusting in and looking to. The axe is coming for them. And the time to bear good fruit is now. The time to repent, it's now. It's not a week from now. It's not tomorrow. It's not next year. It's now. And so the people ask in verse 10, saying, what shall we do then? This is a great question. Again, they're not just taking it all in going, oh, good point. Yeah, you're right. Someone should change. That's a good idea. They're all, and, and each group starts coming to John going, and what should I do? What should we do about this? So the whole group in general, they're applying this to themselves. Yes, we agree. Repentance needs to happen. But what does that look like? Right? And that's a great question. What does it look like? And so with each group, you know, you've got the general people, but then you've got the people like the tax collectors who were the bottom of the barrel. You know, we talked about shepherds were almost the bottom of the barrel. The tax collectors were the bottom of the barrel. Nobody liked the tax collectors, just like today. It was, it was even worse then, though. Because they were considered traitors to Israel. They were working for Rome. They were extracting taxes. And while Rome had given them a price of like, okay, collect this much per month, anything they collected above that was theirs. That's how they paid their salary. And so the more they could extract, the more wealthy they became. And everybody knew it. The soldiers. These aren't Roman soldiers. These are the soldiers that would have been in the temple. These were the same group of soldiers that showed up there to arrest Jesus in the garden. And, or the same group, not necessarily the same ones, but the same group. Um, and so they also were paid, but it was really easy for them to get people to pay them more, basically give them bribes. That if they would falsely accuse someone of committing a crime, they're like, oh, well, could I just pay for that crime now? <laughs> there may or may not be some uh, denarius in my, <laughs> denarius in my uh, wallet here. And, and so they would, again, add to themselves. So John's instruction for everybody, including those, is that, first of all, be generous. Give to those who have nothing. If you have an excess or just a slight amount more than you need, give to those who have none. Be generous. And there's something so good for us about being generous, even in little ways. And it's not always with our money. It might be with our time or our talents or abilities to just go, you know what? I'm just going to give something away with nothing for repayment at all. It does something good inside of us. It's very important 
for our mental health, for our walk with the Lord, for all of those things, to be people of generosity. Next, he tells, again, all of these people not to leverage their place of authority. Don't be those that are going, well, I've got this place and I can extract a little extra money. I can take advantage of these people or I can do something. Don't do that. Don't use it as as leverage over other people. But be somebody who's not only generous, but who is just. He's not telling them, tax collectors, quit your jobs. Don't be tax collectors anymore. He's saying, go ahead, be tax collectors, but be fair. And yeah, you do have to pay your bills, but you don't need to do more than that. Soldiers, you have a job as well, but don't intimidate. Don't don't extort people for money. Now, all these things that he's giving are just straight scriptural truth. You can find them so many places, New and Old Testament. But he's just telling them, guys, you know what you're supposed to do. So do it. Be just, be kind, be generous with one another. That it is God who defines right and wrong. It's not the world. And so many things are justified quickly by the world, right? Oh, it's just business. Oh, it's just, it's just how things are done. You know, it's nothing personal, just business. No, it's either right or it's wrong. And God is the one who defines which is which. And for all of us, then and now, we need to understand what our personal sin is. What are the things that are distracting us? What are the things drawing us away? What are the things getting in the way of our relationship with the Lord? Because, like I said, in John's day, there are many things very similar to our day. There were an abundance of distractions. I think we have far outdone any generation previously when it comes to distractions. Holy cow! And it's always sold the same. Well, there's two different ways it's sold. The first is, this is going to save you so much time. And we're like, yeah, I want to save some time. right? And the next one is, and this is for your safety. Those are the two biggest selling points of all the distractions that come our way. And I believe, just as John was preparing for the Lord's arrival, we are in the generation preparing for the Lord's return. And that this abundance of distractions is not coincidental. I believe that there's, the enemy is behind it just trying to keep people as distracted and off balance as possible that we would not take the time to stop and look up. But just like in John's day, I believe the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And that there is a change coming. There are things, and I, and I believe that first of all it is in us. Not a major event that's going to take place necessarily, although God can use whatever he wants. Um, I believe that there is a major change coming because distractions can only distract for so long. No matter how good they are, right? Video games, internet, cell phone apps, whatever it is, all these little distractions, at some point we just kind of go, I'm kind of tired of all that. And it's funny because I'm starting to see it in different areas. Like, <laughs> one of the weird ones, people are into books again. And, and magazines, creating magazines and things like that is like this new art form. Like, oh, yeah, this used, people used to do this back in the 80s, you know? <laughs> they had paper with pictures on it, and now people are like, yeah, that's my art form. I'm like, it's a book. <laughs> it's a, you know? 
But people are being drawn back into going, yeah, I like that. There's something solid about it, something real, tangible. I can touch the pages with my hand, right? And there's another interesting thing, and I've got to be careful not just zing off on a tangent here, but consider all of the distractions we have, all the different forms right now, they all depend on one thing, electricity. Isn't that funny? It would only take one event to shut it all off. Every single one shut down completely. And, I, and we're in a very interesting time. This is where I can get distracted. I'm going to try and summarize. So every 100 years, the sun goes into this system where it starts shaking and throwing off these massive uh, plasma events that are charged with huge particles of electromagnetic whatnot or whatever that does. Every 100 years, the last time it happened... It was the early 1900s, which wasn't a big deal because it doesn't affect people. It only affects electronics. And back then, the most high-tech thing they had was the telegraph. But there were all these uh, testimonies of telegraphs that were not plugged in began to work. And power lines, the very few that existed, began to glow and burn up all on their own. We are just overdue for that next set of events. And... They're recording between the years of 2023 and 2025 record numbers of these plasma events from the sun are supposed to take place. All those, all those distractions could just go, Bloop. whoa, my phone's not working. Hey, either is mine. <laughs> and again, not to be all doom and gloom, I'm just saying how quickly those distractions can, can all go away. All the things that people hold to, like, oh, this is really important. Remove the electricity from it, and, and how well does it work now, yeah. right? Time, I believe, is short. First of all, it is short because we don't know how much time we have individually, right? Everyone can look at it and go, well, yeah, the Lord could return any day, and I believe he certainly could. But we tend to hear that and go, well, but probably not today. However, any of us might stand before him before this day is over. Amen. Time is short. And John's message, I believe, is very much the same message to us today. All right, so verse 15, we'll finish up here. It says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, John 
is so different from what everyone expects. And again, that, that's part of that spirit and anointing of Elijah. No one was like Elijah at his time, and no one was like John at his time. And so different, they're thinking, man, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ we've been waiting for? And John doesn't even hesitate. No, I am not. He knew his place. He knew that he was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Um, but he lets them know, hey, I'm nothing compared with the one who's going to be coming right behind me. The one that is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Both of those are speaking of change and refinement and purification that can only happen by Jesus Christ. And again, there's this mention of judgment, that he's coming with his winnowing fan in his hand. He's coming to sort things out. He's coming to sort people out. That there's gonna, the chaff and the wheat will be separated. And, uh, and that's speaking of the judgment to come. That those that look like they're super spiritual and aren't <laughs> will be blown away. And those that truly love the Lord will be gathered into the barn. Jesus knows those who are his. Again, I believe that John's generation and ours, man, very similar. And again, we're not going to go through this genealogy. It's worth going through on your own if you have time this week during your devotions to go through it and just give a look at who some of these people are that are listed here. Because Jesus could have chosen anyone as his descendants, right? He could have made just like the perfect line of, of righteous people. But what you will find is they are the good, the bad, and the ugly. There are righteous people and there are horrible people. There are absolute pagan sinners that are just leading Israel astray. And there are those that truly love God. Again, I think this all points to the heart of the Lord that he wants to meet us right where we're at. He, he wants the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wants everyone to be invited in. Everyone is invited in. But everyone must choose. And everyone must decide if they will repent. That's a word we don't use a lot. But it is key. Coming to church isn't enough. Wearing Christian shirts is not enough. The walk with Christ begins with repentance. And I believe a real walk with Christ continues in repentance. That, yes, we're saved. Yes, we belong to Jesus Christ. But, man, we, we need to be brought low sometimes. We need to be humbled, and we need to be put in that place of, God, I repent. I've been going the wrong way. I've had the wrong mindset. I've had the wrong priorities. I need you to bring me low, that I might be focused on you more. He desires this relationship with us. And he, then he desires for us to be those going out in the world to let him know, hey, repentance is a good thing. Salvation is available. And the king is on his way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you that you have given your word so 